Chapter Twelve, Part One of the Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twelve: Cicero's Philosophy, Part One. It will have been observed that in the list given in the previous chapter. The works commonly published as Cicero's philosophy have been divided. Some are called his philosophy, and some his moral essays. It seems to be absurd to put forward to the world his Tusculan inquiries, written with the declared object of showing that death and pain were not evils, together with a moral essay such as that De Officiis, in which he tells us what it may become a man of the world to do. It is as though we bound up Lord Chesterfield's letters in a volume with Hume's essays, and called them the philosophy of the eighteenth century. It might be true, but it would certainly be absurd. There might be those who regard the letters as philosophical, and those who would speak so of the essays, but their meaning would be diametrically opposite. It is so with Cicero, whose treatises have been lumped together under this name, with the view of bringing them under one appellation. It has been found necessary to divide his works and to describe them. The happy man who first thought to put the De Natura Deorum and the De Amicitia into boards together, and to present them to the world under the name of his philosophy, perhaps found the only title that could unite the two. But he has done very much to mislead the world, and to teach readers to believe that Cicero was, in truth, one who endeavoured to live in accordance with the doctrine of any special school of philosophy. He was too honest, too wise, too civilised, too modern for that. He knew, no one better, that the pleasure of the world was pleasant, and that the ills are the reverse. When his wife betrayed him he grieved, when his daughter died he sorrowed, when his foe was strong against him he hated him. He avoided pain when it came near him, and did his best to have everything comfortable around him. He was so far an Epicurean, as we all are. He did not despise death or pain or grief. He was a modern-minded man, if I make myself understood, of robust tendencies, moral, healthy, and enduring. But he was anything but a philosopher in his life. Let us remember the way in which he laughs at the idea of bringing philosophy into real life in the De Oratore. He is speaking of the manner in which the lawyers would have had to behave themselves in the law courts if philosophy had been allowed to prevail. No man could have grieved aloud, no patron would have wept, no one would have sorrowed. There would have been no calling of the Republic to witness, not a man would have dared to stamp his foot, lest it should have been told to the Stoics. You should keep the books of the philosophers for your Tusculan ease, he had said in the preceding chapter and he speaks in the same page of Plato's fabulous state. Then why, it may be asked, did he write so many essays on philosophy, enough to have consumed the energies of many laborious years? There can be no doubt that he did write the philosophy, though we have ample reason to know that it was not his philosophy. All those treatises, beginning with the Academica, written when he was sixty-two, two years only before his death, and carried on during twelve months with indomitable energy, the De Finibus, the Tusculan Disputations, the De Natura Deorum, the De Divinatione, and the De Fato, 
were composed during the time named. To those who have regarded Cicero as a philosopher, as one who has devoted his life to the pursuits of philosophy, does it not appear odd that he should have deferred his writing on the subject, and postponed his convictions, till now? At this special period of his life, why should he have rushed into them at once, and should so have done it as to be able to leave them aside at another period? Why has all this been done within less than two years? Let any man look to the last year of his life, when the Philippics were coming hot from his brain and eager from his mouth, and ask himself how much of Greek philosophy he finds in them. Out of all the sixty-four years of his life he devoted one to this philosophy, and that not the last, but the penultimate, and so lived during all these years, even including that one, as to show how little hold philosophy had upon his conduct. Aideomaitroas, was that Greek philosophy, or the eager exclamation of a human spirit, in its weakness and in its strength, fearing the breath of his fellow-men, and yet knowing that the truth would ultimately be expressed by it. Nor is the reason for this far to seek, though the character which could avail itself of such a reason requires a deep insight. To him literature had been everything. We have seen with what attention he had studied oratory, rhetoric, rather, so as to have at his fingers' ends the names of those who had ever shone in it, and the doctrines that they had taught. We know how well read he was in Homer and the Greek tragedians, how he knew by heart his Ennius, his Naivius, his Pacuvius, and the others who had written in his own tongue. As he was acquainted with the poets and rhetoricians, so also was he acquainted with those writers who have handled philosophy. His incredible versatility was never at fault, he knew them all from the beginning, and could interest himself in their doctrines. He had been in the schools at Athens, and had learned it all. In one sense, he believed in it. There was a great battle of words carried on, and in regard to that battle he put his faith in this set or in the other. But had he ever been asked by what philosophical process he would rule the world, he would have smiled. Then he would have declared himself not to be an academician, but a republican. It was with him a game of play, ornamented with all the learning of past ages. He had found the schools full of it in Athens, and had taken his part in their teaching. It had been pleasant to him to call himself a disciple of Plato, and to hold himself aloof from the straightness of the Stoics, and from the mundane theories of the followers of Epicurus. It had been well for him also to take an interest in that play. But to suppose that Cicero, the modern Cicero, the Cicero of the world, Cicero the polished gentleman, Cicero the soft-hearted, Cicero the hater, Cicero the lover, Cicero the human, was a believer in Greek philosophy, that he had taken to himself and fed upon those shreds and tatters and dry sticks that he had ever satisfied himself with such a mode of living as they could promise to him, is indeed to mistake the man. His soul was quiveringly alive to all those instincts which now govern us. Go among our politicians, and you shall find this man and the other who, in after-dinner talk, shall call himself an Epicurean, or shall think himself to be an academician. He has carried away something of the learning of his college days, and remembers enough of his school exercises for that. 
but when he has to make a speech for or against protection, then you will find out where lies his philosophy. And so it was with Cicero, during this, the penultimate year of his life. He poured forth during this period such an amount of learning on the subject that when men took it up after the lapse of centuries, they labelled it all as his philosophy. When he could no longer talk politics, nor act them, when the forum was no longer open to him, nor the meetings of the people or of the senate, when he could no longer make himself heard on behalf of the state, then he took to discussions on Carneades. And his discussions are wonderful. How he could lay his mind to work when his daughter was dead, and write in beautiful language four such treatises, as came from his pen, while he was thinking of the temple which was to be built to her memory. It is a marvel that at such a period, at such an age, he should have been equal to the labour. But it was thus that he amused himself, consoled himself, distracted himself. It is hard to believe that in the sad evening of his life such a power should have remained with him, but easier, I think, than to imagine that in that year of his life he had suddenly become philosophical. In describing the Academica, the first of these works in point of time, it is necessary to explain that, by reason of an alteration in his plan of publishing, made by Cicero after he had sent the first copy to Atticus, and by the accident that the second part has been preserved of the former copy, and the first part of the second, a confusion has arisen. Cicero had felt that he might have done better by his friends than to bring Hortensius, Catullus, and Lucullus, discussing Greek philosophy, before the public. They were, none of them, men who, when alive, had interested themselves in the matter. He therefore rewrote the essays, or altered them, and again sent them forth to his friend Varro. Time has been so far kind to them as to have preserved portions of the first book as altered, and the second of the four which constituted the first edition. It is that which has been called Lucullus. The Catullus had come first, but has been lost. Hortensius and Cicero were the two last. We may perceive, therefore, into what a length of development he carried his purpose. It must be, of course, understood that he dictated these exercises, and assisted himself by the use of all mechanical means at his disposal. The men who worked for him were slaves, and these slaves were always willing to keep in their own hands the good things which came to them by the exercise of their own intelligence and adroitness. He could not multiply his own hands or brain, but he could multiply all that might assist them. He begins by telling Varro that he has long since desired to illustrate in Latin letters the philosophy which Socrates had commended, and he asks Varro why he, who was so much given to writing, had not as yet written about any of these things. As Varro boasted afterwards that he was the author of four hundred and ninety books, there seems to be a touch of irony in this. Be that as it may, Varro is made to take up the gauntlet and to rush away at once amidst the philosophers. But here, on the threshold, as it were, of his inquiries, we have Cicero's own reasons given in plain language. But now, hit hard by the heavy blow of fortune, and freed as I am from looking after the state, I seek from philosophy relief from my pain. He thinks that he may in this way perhaps best serve the public, or even, 
if it be not so, what else is that he may find to do? As he goes on, however, we find that what he writes is about the philosophers rather than philosophy. Then we come to the Lucullus. It seems odd that the man whose name has come down to us as a byword for luxury, and who is laden with the reproach of overeating, should be thus brought forward as a philosopher. It was perhaps the subsequent feeling on Cicero's part that such might be the opinion of men which induced him to alter his form, in vain as far as we are concerned. But Lucullus had lived with Antiochus, a Greek philosopher, who had certain views of his own, and he is made to defend them through this book. Here, as elsewhere, it is not the subject which delights us, so much as the manner in which he handles certain points almost outside the subject. How many things do those exercised in music know which escapes us? Ah, there is Antiope, they say. That is Andromache. What can be truer, or less likely we may suppose to meet us in a treatise on philosophy, and therefore more welcome? He is speaking of evidence. It is necessary that the mind shall yield to what is clear, whether it wish it or no, as the dish in a balance must give way when a weight is put upon it. You may snore, if you will, as well as sleep, says Carneades. What good will it do you? And then he gives the guesses of some of the old philosophers as to the infinite. Thales has said that water is the source of everything. Anaximander would not agree to this, for he thought that all had come from space. Anaximenes had affirmed that it was air. Anaxagoras had remarked that matter was infinite. Xenophanes had declared that everything was one whole, and that it was a god, everlasting, eternal, never born and never dying, but round in his shape. Parmenides thought that it was fire that moved the earth. Leucippus believed it to be plenum et inane. What full and empty may mean, I cannot tell. But Democritus could, for he believed in it, though in other matters he went a little further. Empedocles sticks to the old four elements. Heraclitus is all for fire. Melissus imagines that whatever exists is infinite and immutable, and ever has been and ever will be. Plato thinks that the world has always existed, while the Pythagoreans attribute everything to mathematics. Your wise men, continues Cicero, will know one whom to choose out of all these. Let the others who have been repudiated retire. They are all concealed, these things, hidden in thick darkness, so that no human eye can have power enough to look up into the heavens or down onto the earth. We do not know our own bodies, or the nature or strength of their component parts. The doctors themselves, who have opened them and looked at them, are ignorant. The empirics declare that they know nothing, because as soon as looked at, they may change. Hicetus the Syracusan, as Theophrastus tells us, thinks that the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars all stand still, and that nothing in all the world moves. But the earth. Now, what do you, followers of Epicurus, say to this? I need not carry the conversation on any further to show that Cicero is ridiculing the whole thing. 
this Hicetus, the Syracusan, seems to have been nearer the mark than the others, according to the existing lights, which had not shone out as yet in Cicero's days. But what was the meaning of it all? Who knows anything about it? How is a man to live by listening to such trash as this? It is thus that Cicero means to be understood. I will agree that Cicero does not often speak out so clearly as he does here, turning the whole thing into ridicule. He does generally find it well to say something in praise of these philosophers. He does not quite declare the fact that nothing is to be made of them, or rather there is existing in it all an underfeeling that were he to do so he would destroy his character and rob himself of his amusement. But we remember always his character of a philosopher as attributed to Cato, in his speech during his consulship for Morena. I have told the story when giving an account of the speech. He who cuts the throat of an old cock, when there is no need, has sinned as deeply as the parricide when breaking his father's neck, says Cicero, laughing at the Stoics. There he speaks out the feelings of his heart, there and often elsewhere in his orations. Here, in his Academica, he is eloquent on the same side. We cannot but rejoice at the plainness of his words, but it has to be acknowledged that we do not often find him so loudly betraying himself when dealing with the old discussions of the Greek philosophers. Very quickly after his Academica, in B.C. 45, came the five books De Finibus Bonorum et Malorum, written as though with the object of settling the whole controversy, and declaring whether the truth lay with the Epicureans, the Stoics, or the Academics. What, at last, is the good thing, and what the evil thing, and how shall we gain the one and avoid the other? If he will tell us this, he will have proved himself to be a philosopher to some purpose. But he does nothing of the kind. At the end of the fifth book we find Atticus, who was an Epicurean, declaring to Quintus Cicero that he held his own opinion just as firmly as ever, although he had been delighted to hear how well the academician Piso had talked in Latin. He had hitherto considered that these were things which would not sound well unless in the Greek language. It is again in the form of a dialogue, and like all his writings at this time is addressed to Brutus. It is in five books. The two first are supposed to have been held at Cumae, between Cicero, Torquatus, and Triarius. Here, after a prelude in favour of philosophy and Latin together, Torquatus is allowed to make the best excuse he can for Epicurus. The prelude contains much good sense, for whether he be right or not in what he says, it is good for every man to hold his own language in respect. I have always thought and said, that the Latin language is not poor as it is supposed to be, but even richer than the Greek. Let us learn, says Torquatus, who has happened to call upon him at Cumae with Triarius, a grave and learned youth, as we are told, since we have found you at your house, why it is that you do not approve of Epicurus, he who seems to have freed the minds of men from error, and to have taught them everything which could tend to make them happy? Then Torquatus goes to work, and delivers a most amusing discourse on the wisdom of Democritus and his great disciple. The words fly about with delightful power, so as to leave upon our minds an idea that Torquatus is persuading his audience, for it is Cicero's peculiar gift, in whosoever mouth he puts his words, 
to make him argue as though he were the victor. We feel sure that had he in his hand held a theory contrary to that of Torquatus, had he in truth cared about it, he could not have made Torquatus speak so well. But the speaker comes to an end, and assures his hearers that his only object had been to hear, as he had never heard before, what Cicero's own opinion might be on the matter. The second book is a continuation of the same meeting. The word is taken up by Cicero, and he refutes Torquatus. It seems to us, however, that poor Epicurus is but badly treated. As has generally been the case in the prose works which have come down to us, we have indeed the poem of Lucretius, and it is admitted that it contains fine passages. But I was always told, when young, that the writing of it had led him to commit suicide, a deed on his part which seems to have been painted in black colours, though Cato and Brutus the Stoics did the same thing very gloriously. The Epicureans are held to be sensualists, because they have used the word pleasure instead of happiness, and Cicero is hard upon them. He tells a story of the dying moments of Epicurus, quoting a letter written on his deathbed. "'While I am writing,' he says, "'I am living my last hour, and the happiest. I have so bad a pain in my stomach that nothing can be worse. But I am compensated for it all by the joy I feel as I think of my philosophical discourses.' Cicero then goes on to declare that, though the saying is very noble, it is unnecessary. He should not, in truth, have required compensation. But whenever an opinion is enunciated, the reader feels it to be unnecessary. He does not want opinion. He is satisfied with the language in which Cicero writes about the opinions of others, and with the amusing manner in which he deals with things of themselves heavy and severe. In the third book, he, some time afterwards, discusses the Stoic doctrine with Cato at the Tusculan villa of Lucullus, near to his own. He had walked over, and, finding Cato there by chance, had immediately gone to work to demolish Cato's philosophical doctrines. He tells us what a glutton Cato was over his books, taking them even into the Senate with him. Cicero asks for certain volumes of Aristotle, and Cato answers him that he would fain put into his hands those of Zeno's school. We can see how easily Cato falls into the trap. He takes up his parable and preaches his sermon, but he does it with a marvellous enthusiasm, so that we cannot understand that the man who wrote it intended to demolish it all in the next few pages. I will translate his last words of Cato's appeal to the world at large, I have been carried further than my intention. But in truth the admirable order of the system and the incredible symmetry of it has led me on. By the gods do you not wonder at it? In nature there is nothing so close-packed, nor in art so well-fitted. The latter always agrees with the former, that which follows with that which has gone before. Not a stone in it all can be moved from its place. If you touch but one letter it falls to the ground. How severe, how magnificent, how dignified stands out the person of the wise man, who, when his reason shall have taught him that virtue is the only good, of a necessity must be happy. He shall be more justly called king than Tarquin, who could rule neither himself nor others, more rightly dictator than Sulla, the owner of the three vices, luxury, avarice, and cruelty, 
more rightly rich than Crassus, who, had he not in truth been poor, would never have crossed the Euphrates in quest of war. All things are justly his who knows how to use them justly. You may call him beautiful whose soul is more lovely than his body. He is free who is slave to no desire. He is unconquered for whose mind you can forge no chains. You need not wait with him for the last day to pronounce him happy. If this be so, then the good man is also the happy man. What can be better worth our study than philosophy, or what more heavenly than virtue? All of this was written by Cicero in most elaborate language, with a finish of words polished down to the last syllable, because he had nothing else wherewith to satisfy the cravings of his intellect. The fourth book is a continuation of the argument, which, when he had said, he made an end, but I began. With no other introduction, Cicero goes to work and demolishes every word that Cato had said. He is very courteous, so that Cato cannot but admit that he is answered becomingly, but, to use a common phrase, he does not leave him a leg to stand upon. Although during the previous book Cato has talked so well that the reader will think that there must be something in it, he soon is made to perceive that the stoic budge is altogether shoddy. The fifth and last book, De Finibus, is supposed to recount a dialogue held at Athens, or rather gives the circumstances of a discourse pretended to have been delivered there by Pupius Piso to the two Ciceros and their cousin Lucius, on the merits of the old academy and the Aristotelian peripatetics. For Plato's philosophy had got itself split in two, there was the old and the new, and we may perhaps doubt to which Cicero devoted himself. He certainly was not an Epicurean, and he certainly was not a Stoic. He delighted to speak of himself as a lover of Plato, but in some matters he seems to have followed Aristotle, who had diverged from Plato, and he seems also to have clung to Carneades, who had become master of the new academy. But, in truth, to ascertain the special doctrine of such a man on such a subject is vain. As we read these works, we lose ourselves in admiration of his memory. We are astonished at the industry which he exhibits. We are delighted by his perspicuity, and feel ourselves relieved amidst the crowd of names and theories by flashes of his wit. But there comes home to us as a result the singular fact of a man playing with these theories as the most interesting sport the world had produced, but not believing the least in any of them. It was not that he disbelieved, and perhaps among them all the tenets of the new academy were those which reconciled themselves the best to his common sense but they were all nothing to him but an amusement. In this book there are some exquisite bits. He says, speaking of Athens, that go where you will through the city, you place your footsteps on the vestiges of history. He says of a certain Demetrius, whom he describes as writing books without readers in Egypt, that this culture of his mind was to him, as it were, the food by which his humanity was kept alive and then he falls into the praise of our love for our neighbours, and introduces us to that true philosophy which was the real guide of his life. Among things which are honest, he says, there is nothing which shines so brightly and so widely 
as that brotherhood between men, that agreement as to what may be useful to all, and that general love for the human race. It comes from our original condition, in which children are loved by their parents, and then, binding together the family, it spreads itself abroad among relations, connections, friends and neighbours. Then it includes citizens and those who are our allies. At last it takes in the whole human race. And that feeling of the soul arises which, giving every man his own, and defending by equal laws the rights of each, is called justice. It matters little how may have been introduced this great secret, which Christ afterwards taught, and for which we look in vain through the writings of all the philosophers. It comes here simply from Cicero himself, in the midst of his remarks on the new academy, but it gives the lesson which had governed his life. I will do unto others as I would they should do unto me. In this is contained the rudiments of that religion which has served to soften the hearts of us all. It is of you, I must think, and not of myself. Hitherto the schools had taught how a man should make himself happy, whether by pleasure, whether by virtue, or whether by something between the two. It seems that it had never as yet occurred to a man to think of another except as a part of the world around him. Then there had come a teacher who, while fumbling among the old Greek lessons which had professed to tell mankind what each should do for himself, brings forth this, as it were, in preparation for the true doctrine that was to come. Ipsa caritas generis humani, that love of the human race. I trust I may be able to show, before I have finished my work, that this was Cicero's true philosophy. All the rest is merely with him a play of words. End of chapter 12, part 1